Hello everyone, welcome. It's lovely to see you. Um, we're here tonight for the penultimate um, event in our In Conversation Pioneering Women celebration of the centenary of women's suffrage. Um, you'll recall we've had the master of the Queen's music, Judith Weir. We've had um, Pippa Rogerson, who is the first master of Gonville and Keys College, Cambridge. We've had Baroness Amos, Michelle Hussein, a whole galaxy of wonderful women. And tonight we're welcoming Dr. Pippa Malmgren, who is um, uh, the Omegatrends analyst, which is very exciting, co-founder of H Robotics and former White House presidential advisor. And we're honoured that tonight she's going to be talking to us about her book, The Leadership Lab, which I thoroughly commend to you. It's full of the most wonderful facts. For example, I hadn't realised that BlackRock will divest from firms that have fewer than two women on the board, that Nigeria has emerged as the new coding centre of the world, that height is associated with authority, which explains my shoes, um, that Salesforce CEO says treat social media like a health issue and regulate it the way you would regulate cigarettes, and that science is now looking at memories to see if they are chemical sequences that we can... Um, even implant, possibly. So, all of this is in the book. And um, the book has been um, welcomed to great acclaim, hasn't it? I think it won the FT, or it's one of the FT recommended books for October. And Pippa has just told me that hot off the press, it is now the CEO Goodreads, in the CEO Goodreads list at number 16. So it's doing great things. It deals with leadership. It looks at leadership um, regardless of sex. It makes great recommendations for what leaders should be doing in a changing world. And in doing so, it deals with geopolitics. It deals with data. It discusses um, new science trends. But there's also an excellent chapter on gender, which I commend to you. So I don't want to steal all Pippa's thunder by taking all her best quotes. So without more ado, I'll pass over to her for about 15 minutes. The plan is that... Um, Pippa will speak to you about the book, then I'll ask Pippa some questions, and then you'll ask Pippa some questions, and then we'll all go outside and have a drink and ask Pippa some more questions. Okay. <laughs> Thank Fantastic. Thank you so much. So one of the things about writing a book on leadership that suddenly gets a lot of traction is you get invited to do certain things. I recently found myself, as the only woman in the room, briefing the standing head, well, the head of every standing army in NATO. And so quite an extraordinary moment when you look up, you feel like, am I in a novel? Um, <laughs> and it was very interesting talking to these military leaders about leadership, because of course that is, they think, their specialty. But even they have realized that the demands of leadership today have changed. And the skills and the qualities that you needed to be a good leader in the 20th century are actually quite different from the ones you need in the 21st. I want to actually say the book isn't really just about leadership. What it really is, is an opportunity to look across the landscape and observe it freshly. And the reason that my co-author and I decided to do this is because we're both briefing leaders all over the world. We're briefing political leaders. You probably know I'm an advisor to the British government right now uh, on Brexit. Don't throw stones. We can talk about that. Uh, I have, as you said, worked for the President of the United States. I'm often briefing chief executives. So I'm dealing with leaders. My co-author, Chris Lewis, who runs a public relations firm, is doing the same. And we found that there were some consistencies to the various crises that we're seeing. 
I mean, you're seeing crisis in leadership in every category of leadership, from the scandals around the auto emissions to uh, the complaints people have about how Brexit is being handled to the Catholic Church is having leadership issues at the moment. There's almost no sector that isn't subject to leadership crisis. And we thought, what is the common theme here? And we had a few common themes. Uh, one of them was, all the people who are in charge today are of my generation. That means they're in their 50s and 60s. Um, typically, they are men. That wasn't the problem. It's just a consistency. But also, because they've gone up very, uh, very confidently, they believe they understand what's going on. And in fact, they're about 10 years out of date in their views. And that's because they're so busy doing what they do all day long, and they don't have time to actually just look around and understand what has changed. So they'll say things like, all the jobs are moving to China. Like, you hear the president of my country often saying this, right? All the jobs are moving to China. And as an economist, I said, well, actually, that's not really true anymore. And in fact, I manufacture robotics, so I can tell you it's more competitive to make robotics in London than it is to make them in China right now. And not only that, but there's a reason that Foxconn, which makes all the iPhones that are in your pocket, why has Foxconn, which employs 1.2 million Chinese, <coughs> second biggest employer in China, why have they just completed the first production facility in Wisconsin? because Wisconsin is more competitive than Shenzhen. Now that is an incredibly dramatic change on the global economic landscape. And leaders who haven't clocked this immediately give away that they are not properly oriented in reality by saying all the jobs are moving to China. When in fact what the Chinese leadership are doing are saying, wow, we have so lost our ability to deliver a better future, we have to come up with an entirely new plan. And one part of that new plan is called the Belt and Road Initiative. You guys have heard about that. Effectively, they're trying to build GDP outside the country because they can't build enough inside. Why? Because the wages have gone up so much. In fact, Mexico has emerged as the new China, amazingly, because their wages are 40 to, well, 20 to 40% cheaper than China, but their quality control is American standard. And then everybody goes, well, but Mexico, I'm not going to do any business there because President Trump is building a wall. And then I go talk to the American businesses that are dealing with Mexico, and they say, well, we think it is the new China. It's the hottest, most competitive emerging market. And the Mexicans aren't even moving north anymore because there's so many jobs in Mexico. And the president can build the wall, but we're going to use a super nifty piece of technology called an airplane to fly over it, and we're going to still be doing a ton of business. And meanwhile, the Mexicans are receiving an extraordinary amount of investment from China in the form of the Belt and Road Initiative. I would commend you to have a look at um, the new proposed airport in Mexico City, which uh, looks to be something on a par with the Bilbao Museum. It, it, it will be like Shanghai Airport. It will put the JFK, my home airport, to shame. I mean, there's just no comparison where Mexico is going with transportation infrastructure versus the US. So this is the sort of thing, when I start to explain to people, this is what's actually going on. I have a lot of leaders who go, oh, I didn't know any of this. Well, are you surprised that people aren't following you if you don't know where you are? 
And so part of the book was to create what the military calls better situational awareness. And what that means is properly understanding not what you assume, not what you remember, not what is 10 years out of date, but what is actually happening right now. And that's why uh, it's a very ambitious book and it does cover a huge amount of territory. But we realized we had to do it because so many leaders don't get what's around them. And it's not just economics, which is what I've just described. Um, and I can give you other examples. Like they'll say, there's no inflation. And you say, well, but have you noticed that all your junior staff can't afford to live within like two hours of the workplace? Because we have any young people who are finding rent is expensive, you know, in a city like London. Everywhere you find inflation is actually bigger than the number tells you. And so you have to th rethink what is the number telling me? Because the number is actually just an average. But it's a wave, and some people get hit by inflation earlier and harder than others. So now we have to kind of open up our minds to that thought process. Another piece of that puzzle is technology. And so many leaders are like, you know, I just don't do technology. And I'm kind of like, well, if you don't do technology, technology is going to do you. That's the bottom line. <laughs> you don't have a choice. You have to get a grip on what technology is. I'll give you just a little bit, and then I'm going to uh, finish with telling you about how all of this requires a, a new thought process. So we're entering literally a new almost dimension of reality because of technology right now. So all of you are emitting data right now as you sit here. You may not realize it, but things like the way you walk, literally, your phone is picking up how you walk, and your walking gait is a better indicator of who you are than your thumbprint these days. The way you touch, pinch, swipe on your screen is a better indicator of who you are. Your, if you have an automated vacuum cleaner, it is broadcasting the dimensions of your rooms that it's cleaning and the human use of the space. Uh, more and more, even the phone is able to detect things like humidity changes. In other words, they can tell when you're sleeping or you're awake. Uh, all of you have probably experienced this strange thing of you're chatting with your friends and suddenly text messages are showing up that are replicating the words that you've said because more and more your voice is being broadcast. The most valuable startup in the world today is a Chinese company called SenseTime. And SenseTime is artificial intelligence. It's worth $6 billion last time I looked, but that was like three weeks ago, so probably it's seven by now. And what SenseTime can do is, in addition to taking all that data, it's facial recognition, and it can identify you out of a crowd of 10,000 people. It can identify the exact emotional state of every person in that crowd of 10,000 people, which is incredibly valuable if you're either trying to sell them something or if you're a military trying to understand what your opposition is thinking. Um, but if you're, it can also go even deeper. If you're a chief executive and you go on CNBC Squawk Box, it can identify the microfacial movements that indicate you are lying, hello, and short your stock before you've even left the seat. So all of this data now comes together in a kind of holographic space of quadrillions of data points. And it creates literally a place where you can conjure forth answers that are more accurate and precise than anything we've ever had before. 
it's a place I would call of radical transparency, and it resembles very much something humanity has always wanted, which is a crystal ball. It's literally an ability to see reality on a scale that we've never seen it before. So you can both solve cancers, and you can create governance systems that bring all kinds of new ethical questions. You've probably seen the Chinese social credit system, where they triangulate on all this stuff, and if you do something they don't consider socially compliant, they give you an Uber score and your Uber score goes down. To the point that you may not be permitted to take a train or a plane because your score is too low. In other words, digital prisons can be created in this context. We do it, by the way, in the West. We just do it through Amazon and Facebook and Uber. Uh, but more and more artificial intelligence connects the dots and creates a bigger overall score. So as an example, um, I was talking with the head of a major bank the other day. The bank buys all this data. And of course, there's more recently a, a deal between Google and MasterCard, which is rather groundbreaking, because in the past, all your banking data was private. But now, not so much. So if I go to you know, Peter Jones and I buy a particular lipstick, Google's going to know if I paid with my MasterCard. So, What's happening in that space is a creation of a kind of holographic image of who I am. And then the bank can make decisions based on that. So bottom line is, the bank knows you're going to get divorced before you know. And it grinds down the credit limit of the lower earning partner in anticipation of that event. So this is the world we're in. It's not science fiction. It's not at some point in the future. It's right now. And so part of the book was to help these leaders orient themselves in this new operating environment to understand, like I said, what's actually happening, not what you thought was happening. This, of course, requires a new thought process. And this is, I guess, the main thrust of the book, was really to say what's required in this new environment is very different. So 20th century leaders were very much about the cult of the infallible leader. Probably Jack Welch was the icon of that period. He didn't even need to put his last name on his book. It was just Jack, right? So this is the infallible leader who decides what is right and then tells everybody what to do. This is not working in the 21st century. 21st century leadership is no longer about the leader. It's about the ship. It's about how to get this whole group of people to come to the full fruition of their talent and their vision and their capability. Because in this environment, being older doesn't necessarily make you wiser, right? Because now all of you, even the youngest person in this room, you have in your pocket with a mobile device more computational power than was required to send a man to the moon. If you said to someone, I'm going to send a man to the moon with my phone, they would just laugh. But literally, that's a multiple of the amount of computational power. So young people now have something to say. And so many leaders are like, oh, these kids, you know, they want to do stuff with Twitter. I don't even know what Twitter is. And you're like, okay, well, then you need to understand Twitter and what it's about. Uh, so one of the things that we recommend, we say, People in their particularly 40s and 50s these days, but frankly, all of us, by nature of you being in this particular room and being part of the legal community, you've been trained to be analytical. And analytical is all about drilling down deeper into data and detail and particularly math, numbers. 
And while there is some value in that, the answers are not exclusively there. And this explains why our leaders have been so blindsided by events. How did they miss Trump? How did they miss Brexit? How did they miss the slowdown in China? How did they miss that it wasn't appropriate to manipulate the data from the emissions control issue for the German automakers? Because they're all looking down in this microscope into greater detail in the data. What they're not doing, they are doing strictly analytical. They're not doing what we call parenthetical. The parenthetical is about the look across the landscape. It's about connecting the dots between different silos. If this is about measuring the math, this is about measuring the mood. If this is about the facts, this is about the feelings. And everybody goes, oh, feelings, you know, I don't want to get into all that. And I'm like, well, you have to because we have populism. And populism is about feelings. It's not about facts because the facts say we're all better off. But that's not how people feel. So being able to do both is a critical skill. And I think a lot of our leaders are not as good as the parenthetical as they are at the analytical. I'll finish with one last thought, which is about diversity of thinking, which is probably the single biggest message of the book. Uh, diversity of people, which we think is hugely important, contributes, but it doesn't necessarily answer because I know from experience uh, you know, I can have a big room of very diverse people and say to them, Trump is going to win. And they all go, you are insane. That will never happen. So what that requires then is to move away from prediction and towards preparedness. Prediction is Trump will never win. Brexit will never happen. It's a bet. It's binary. It's a very risky thing to do because if you get it wrong, it's super costly, as everybody has been finding out. What makes more sense is to say, I have no idea how it's going to play and actually get comfortable with the uncertainty and the ambiguity and instead say, let's look at a whole bunch of scenarios. Let's stress test this. Let's consider the impossible. Let's listen. Pippa says he might win. Let's have a look at that. What would happen then? So preparedness is a totally different mental process for dealing with future optionality. And I think that doing that makes it more robust. But to contribute to that by having diversity of people is very, very important. And so in the book, we talk about what contributes to diversity. And it's not only gender. It's also age, it's also income, it's also education levels, it's also ethnicity, it's also neuroplasticity, you know, how your brain is wired. These days companies have active programs to hire people who are somewhere on the spectrum of autism because they have very different problem-solving capability than people who aren't. And that's what you want, is the mix of different ways of thinking about things and on gender, what we ended up saying, which was super controversial, and we haven't been called out on it too much yet, but I'm suspecting it'll come. We talked about uh, masculine versus feminine thinking. Oh, boy. So we said, okay, it's maybe you want to call it left brain, right brain. What we're really saying is there's a keyboard of possibility. And at one end of that keyboard, you have the hard, very sort of masculine way of thinking, like P&L. The decision's got to be made based on P&L. At the other end, you might have compassion and empathy. And by the way, it's not to say that compassion and empathy are not 
not qualities that men don't have. They definitely have those. And in fact, what we found in great leaders, they have the ability to go up and down this whole keyboard. And whether they're male or female, to be able to understand when is the right moment to make the decision based on the PNL, and when is it the right moment to make the decision on compassion and empathy. And by the way, brands are totally driven by compassion and empathy and trust. So there are moments when that may be P&L tricky, but you preserve the long-going, long-standing value of a brand this way. So it's not that there's no bottom line. There is. And what we've got are a lot of leaders who are playing chopsticks at one end of this keyboard. And what we need are leaders, whether they're men or women, regardless of their background, who can play music up and down the whole keyboard. So that's why uh, we've said that leadership in the 21st century is not the same as leadership in the 20th. And it does require a different thought process, but you can't even begin that thought process if you don't understand where am I now? What's happening right now today? And so that was the thrust of the book, and maybe that's enough uh, to then turn to your questions, and then your questions, and then drinks. Quite. <laughs> So I got a very big sinking feeling as you were talking. Uh -huh. So I have got lots of questions, but you seem to have answered oh them boy. all. It can't be true. It can't, there must be something in here that you haven't covered. I, I tell you, that chapter on um, women is really fascinating, women and men. Um, who am I describing when I say short-term, tactical, arrogant, manipulative, and <laughs> risk-prone thinking? Well, <laughs> I think we all know. <laughs> Those are the male attributes, but as you say, not all men, not all men have them. But you also dwell on the notion of confidence, yes, and how confidence, um, which is something that I mean, it's true. For example, I'm on our graduate recruitment board. We look in interviews for confident people. Mm. And you talk about the perils of confidence. I wonder yes. if you'd like to say something about that. Definitely. So we looked at some marvelous research out of Harvard about our tendency to confuse confidence with competence. And what all the surveys show is that, for whatever reason, men will typically put their hand up in the air when there's something between 40 and 60% ready for that job, let's say. Women typically wait until they're 100% ready before they'll even allow their name to go forward. They won't, still won't put their hand up in the air and say, me, me, I'm ready. So what happens is we end up hiring a lot of people who go, I am totally ready who are not. And interestingly, women typically, again, these are generalizations, but typically double check their work a lot. Well, if you believe that confidence equals competence, then somebody who double checks their work, you definitely don't want to hire them. They have no confidence. They have to double check their work. We end up with crazy results this way. So you end up with a lot of bluster that you put in charge that doesn't know what they're doing, and all the people who are quiet but working incredibly hard and double-checking, you never promote them. So, and by the way, it's not only women, it's also minorities tend to fall in this underconfidence category as well. So what do you do about it? There are lots of things that are practical, like most meetings are held on the basis of whoever shouts first and loudest wins. Everybody's smiling, you can see, yeah, we've all been in these meetings, like, I know the answer. Okay, what if you instead say equal time, everybody gets five minutes? This compels even the quietest voices in the room, which may be male as well, by the way. Even the quietest voices are required to speak in that environment. 
But now they have a space to speak. And amazingly, they come up with things that they wouldn't have said otherwise. And suddenly, you hear more than you would have. Or the Conservative Party found a few years ago um, they wanted more female MPs. And so they brought in all these female candidates. But the typical format was to stand in front of a very big uh, auditorium, you know, town hall type thing, and give a sort of stump speech to that big group. The women were failing, absolutely failing, every time. Because it's quite hard to stand up in front of a big group of people and create that emotional reaction. What it requires is practice, and they didn't have any practice. So they shifted the format, and they made smaller rooms with smaller groups, called them fireside chats, and then rotated the audience so that person would give the same talk three or four or five times in one evening. Suddenly, the connection was better. Everybody voted for the women candidates, and they shifted the numbers. So the format matters. And, and so that chapter is, it's not so much, it's not a go hire more women or have, um, you know, uh, uh, I'm ditzing on the word, um, a required number. Thank you. <laughs> I'm just doing too much at the moment, running too hard. Uh, but instead, create an environment that doesn't f totally favor the overconfident. And so this is a thing. Now, at the same time, Chris, who I co-wrote this with, Chris spends a lot of time coaching women on how to be more confident. And there are specific things. Lowering your voice, standing taller, um, your, how you physically use space. Um, I know when I started, I was an investment banker for many years, and I remember being, I was the only woman in the White House on the National Economic Council when I served uh, President George W. Bush. And I remember going both on the trading floor and in the White House into meetings, and all the guys with both arms on either chair on either side, I'm wearing a skirt so I won't spread my knees, but they're, you know, man spread, physically huge amount of space. And there's something very powerful about that and taking that space. And I found myself doing the same thing to try to keep up, right? In my older years, I've realized that I actually have a lot of power as a female in the opposite way. And I can bring that room to total silence if I want to without having to physically take the space. But it's a thing you have to think about and you have to practice. So, and again, this is not male-female. A lot of men are the same. I've watched men who don't have to do the, I'm here. They just walk in the room and everything goes quiet. It's a, it's a technique you have to learn. So that chapter was really about how to think about this and how to create an environment that isn't biased in a direction without your intention. Well, that's a great segue for me because another thing about the book is about thinking. And you make the point, well, you have a lovely phrase called fast forgetting. Now, I'm sure we're all familiar with that because it exactly explains what happens when you revise for an exam, at least in my case. <laughs> um, but you, you do say that um, the whole speed of the internet um, and expectations about what happens in this marvellous sort of incredible computer that we have that's just called our iPhone um, creates differences. And in fact, I think you say that at one point, here it is... Um, the reason you give for office productivity declining dramatically since 2007 
is that now everybody, instead of getting an advance and sort of communicating faster, we're literally just all communicating at the same time in real time, which slows things down incredibly. Mm -hmm. And then you talk about patience. And I wondered if you could make a few observations about that. Although I have to say, impatiently, I couldn't work out how on earth I was going to take your advice. But do, yeah. but do tell the audience, because it's fascinating. So uh, think of it this way. We're ever more connected, but having ever less actual conversation. And that connectivity is creating an impatience, because there's just so much stuff. You don't have time. So the typical amount of time that will cause human beings to move away from an internet site is if it doesn't load within two seconds. Second three, they're gone. Two seconds. And this creates an environment where people go, well, Brexit, I mean, I get a web page in two seconds, why can't I get Brexit in two seconds? Right, they, complex, tricky issues, people want it, I mean, I can get Amazon to deliver in an hour. Why can't we get this other stuff fixed? And so it creates a kind of discontinuity. Um, and so we basically explain, everyone you're dealing with, your partner, your kids, your employees, your leader, uh, your whoever, all of them are literally like jittery with all the stress of trying to manage all this stuff. And they're impatient and angry because they are not able to communicate and convey what's important. They're overwhelmed by the inbound. Again, the lack of conversation, you cannot underestimate this. Again, we're looking at the studies. It's showing that fewer and fewer adults are in partnered relationships. More and more males under the age of 25 have not experienced a relationship by the time they're 25. The, because if you can't converse, you can't negotiate. You can't negotiate a relationship if you're trying to do it strictly on the phone. And we talk a lot about the, the whole internet dating, creating this environment of you know, swipe, swipe, swipe. This is not communicating. And so you know, you're surprised. Then you're faced with a real person, and then they, they have views. They want to talk. Oh, you know, tricky. But same thing with a leader who says, I got these millennials, and they, you know, and they don't talk. How can I tell what, what they want? They won't speak in front of me. Well, okay, how are we going to change the environment so it can? So anyway, our recommendation in the end was we've got to put the technology down. We have to put the phone down. We have to stop. You have to create windows in the work environment where you unplug everybody for just a little bit and force them into one room where they talk. <laughs> it's old-fashioned. But talking has to come back. But it's really disappeared. By the way, when I was last in the States, which was like two weeks ago, no, it wasn't, that was on Friday. On Friday, <laughs> I've been traveling enormously. So I realized this, all these shows that, like the one that Trump ran before he went to the White House, you know, the Shark Tank, Dragon's Den, those used to be shows. Now that is how Americans talk to each other. That is America. It's like, what do you want? And why do you think you deserve that? You want extra cheese. What? You know, and like the apple. You're like, whoa, when did this be, when did Kramer become normal? And I don't know when it happened, but it did. And so all of us have to be conscientious about this. And I'll just finish on this last thing saying, 
You can't have civil society if you don't have civil dialogue. And right now, we happen to have a president of the United States who is the opposite of civil dialogue, and it's creating a certain atmosphere. But to be perfectly honest, that is something we can fix. That is our responsibility. We cannot wait for a nicer president of the United States. All of us can engage in more civilized dialogue, and that means when someone disagrees with you, you we all have to stop saying, if you disagree with me, you're either evil or an idiot. And right now, that's the atmosphere. And that's what we tried to explain in that chapter. Technology is creating the I'm right, but I'm not going to speak to you about that. And you're either an evil person or an idiot. Who can get anything done in that environment? No wonder productivity starts to collapse. You also make the point that I think it was Einstein said you have your best ideas in the bath, and that's the right side of the brain. So you need to go back to your room and think, which gave me the wonderful opportunity to sit for an hour in my room and read this book. I never read. I've been keeping timesheets recently. I'm in meetings or on the phone, and I think I need to rebalance and go, I'm a, I'm a lawyer. What, I mean, why aren't I reading? Anyway, that's another matter. Look, I just looked down, and I saw my puppy, and I thought there was an area that you deal with in the book that you didn't refer to, I don't think, in your speech, which was fascinating. I'm, I might be the only person who hadn't spotted, as you say, that defence spending is on the rise, and you say that conscription is being brought back across many European countries, which for anybody who watched that programme last night on telly about um, the First World War, it's, it, it's a really chilling thought. And you have, you, you have some reasons why you think defence spending is on the rise, and it's not just the obvious ones like we're not talking enough. Do you want to say a bit more about that and sure. how it boosts economies and why and, 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 and yeah. that sort of thing? Yeah. So I wrote a book a couple of years ago, uh, 2015, called Geopolitics for Investors. And it was interesting at the time, everyone went, who cares about geopolitics? Like it's, I don't even have to think about that. And I was kind of like, I think you will. I, I think it's coming back for a variety of reasons. Anyway, now we have geopolitics. So what does it look like today? It's very different. President Putin has said artificial intelligence is the new frontier of geopolitics. And I think that is absolutely right. But most people are like, what does that actually mean? So one of the things it means is the new space race is for the computational power that will support the data environment that I just described to you. Because if you're going to manage that much data, if you're going to, like the Chinese, create an entire social system based on all this data management, that takes a lot of computational power. So the new space race, and, and we are spending, we're beating the Cold War defense spending records to the point that I keep saying, you know, people say, oh, we're coming to the end of quantitative easing. I'm like, the new quantitative easing is defense spending. I mean, they may be tightening interest rates over here, but we got a fiscal policy loosening like crazy over here. And what is it being spent on? Computers. So the US has announced something called Summit. Summit is made by NVIDIA and IBM. We keep it at Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Now, the only things we keep at Oak Ridge, Tennessee are nuclear capabilities. What it can do is calculate in one second what takes a human being 6.3 billion years to calculate. I don't even know how they get that number. Like, does that allow for bathroom breaks? Like, <laughs> what is, but anyway, what a human would require 6.3 billion years to calculate, it does in one second. That's the new space race. The Chinese are building a facility right now in Anhui province 
which will be completed in 2020, which they say when it's done will have one million times the computational capability of the entire planet today. So why is that important? Because you can break the other guy's codes, nuclear codes, Bitcoin codes, passwords, everything. Everything is breakable. And that, by the way, is important to this audience as well. I'm often saying to lawyers, accountants, and fund managers, you are the target of industrial espionage because who knows more about the value of an asset than you? You have done all the analysis on what is the mine worth or what is the value of the pipeline or where is the deal going to happen or come unstuck. If, I, if I'm in the world of understanding the value of assets, I don't want to go tap congressmen. They don't really know anything. I want to tap you guys, because you know everything. And if you have that kind of computational power behind you, it's not hard. So this is why security over systems becomes much more important. I mean, again, back to the military. I was in this conversation the other day. Did you realize that the British military only realized about four months ago that they were inadvertently giving away the forward position of some of their special ops because they had their Fitbits on? You're like, and they'll, and they'll say, we're going to secure all the documents because we're having this very intense conversation about things like, let's say, Brexit. And I go, excuse me, what happens when we, you go home and you say to your spouse, you know, the prime minister has just called an emergency meeting? And they're like, in the presence of all those Internet of Things devices in your living room? Oh. Oh. You know, like, it's interesting how people haven't really clocked what this new security environment is like. And again, if I have sense time, you know, if I were President Putin and Xi Jinping and Donald Trump, I would just have a lapel camera while I'm having a conversation with Xi Jinping, and then sense time is going to tell me exactly when they're lying, exactly when they're serious. This is a completely different world to navigate. So this reminds me of The Chrysalids by John Wyndham. Anyone ever read that, where they're all in each other's minds? I mean, I think, I think we're, we're getting closer and closer to that, perhaps. And now, China appears a lot in your book. You mentioned Bolton Road earlier. You came up with this extraordinary statistic that it has 20% of the world's population, but only 7% of the world's water. I had no idea. Um, uh, and we'd already touched on the fact that Mexico now has a cheaper labor force and actually it behoves the Chinese to create factories in the U.S. because the labor is cheaper. I mean, that's quite an interesting idea because it's counter to the uh, orthodox views, I think, about how much you engage with China. And then you um, quote The Economist um, in relation to the Belt and Road Initiative, which said that the um, Belt and Road Initiative is the kind of leadership the U.S. has not shown since the post-war days of the Marshall Plan which I thought was interesting. And I was wondering, I, I now know, because of your introduction, that we're not going to answer this question, you're merely going to posit a series of scenarios. But in the positing those scenarios, I, do you think that the retreat of the US from the world stage is, is, is a real thing? Is it going to go on, or is it just a blip? So uh, I think it will go on. And the reason is, first, you have to understand there are at least two Americas. One is coastal America, which is what all non-Americans know, including this audience, because you go to New York and Washington and LA and San Francisco, and the idea of going to Kansas City is like, why, right? 
I hope nobody hears from Kansas City. I like Kansas City. But anyway, I learned this when I worked in the White House. The coastlines are literally irrelevant from a political perspective. The Democrats own the territory and always will. So there's no point campaigning there because you already own it. The Republicans will never own it, and so why bother? And so it's only useful for fundraising. That's what you do on the coastlines, you fundraise. The fight is for the middle because this is the part of the country that decides who will be president. And the middle is split between the urban, which is Democrat, and the rural, which is Republican. And the middle of the country is where all the GDP comes from. It's where all the sort of moral values of the nation come from. And um, that part of the country has shown a very consistent path, which is they don't like professional politicians anymore. They want an outsider. And I believe that's why they voted for Obama, who was absolutely perceived as an outsider to politics. Remember, he'd been a state senator, but in politics, that doesn't count. That's like being in the, like, the, the, the I don't county know. County council. The, the count, yeah, county council. <laughs> I mean, it's like, what? It's not even... It's kind of cute, right? It's like it doesn't even count, which is why Hillary Clinton treated him so like, get out of here, kid, you know, because it wasn't the real deal. Anyway, so and then he makes it to the Senate, but the Senate is also like not really, you don't manage a budget when you're in the Senate. And to be president, normally, normally, we like to elect people who've managed a budget, which means a governor, and typically a governor from the middle or a big, big state. So um, they elected Obama because they wanted an outsider who would bring radical change. Arguably, the Democrats didn't get enough of what they wanted. The Republicans definitely didn't get what they wanted, so they voted for someone who's even more an outsider and even more radical change. And these midterms, what did everybody vote for? Record number of candidates with zero political experience. Outsider, get me an outsider, somebody who I can trust, not one of these professional politicians. Record number of women, female candidates, uh, and I think this will persist, and I would expect in the next presidential race, it's probably going to be, and I'll give you a super controversial view if you like, on the next run for the White House. It's a rather shocking view, very out of the market. But I suspect Democrats will come up with someone who is not a professional politician because that's the zeitgeist. That's what the public wants. If Oprah would just agree, <laughs> that would do it. But she is smart, and so she knows that this is a nightmare of a thing to do, so she's not going to do it. But, but you can see that that's where the public wants to go. My personal view is that I think Trump isn't going to run again. And that is partly because he feels like, I already won this prize. It's not valuable to win it twice. It's partly because the constraints of the presidency are quite oppressive. And having worked in the White House, it is like being in a straitjacket. And it is a legally constrained environment. Every breath you take, there is a lawyer telling you, you can't do it that way. You've got to do it this other way. And you see, he thought it was a monarchy. But it, it's a constitutional presidency, and that's just a whole different ballgame. So my suspicion is that he, remember, he wanted to launch before he ran. In fact, the purpose of running was to launch what they're calling TNN, the Trump News Network, to take on CNN. And he had raised a fair amount of money for that, and I think that he's going to go do that. And to be fair, like him or not like him, he has a nose for this. 
And the reality is in the data-led world that I've described to you, which is a bigger platform, the Oval Office or TNN? I would argue TNN. Not only will it generate incredible revenue, and he will have everything from political talk shows to reality TV. Why do we think Kanye was visiting the West Wing so much? What are the Kardashians doing in the White House? Well, it totally makes sense if TNN is in play. I also think there are a number of governments that have very large sovereign wealth funds that are presuming a good deal because they are the ones who will be financing this. So those discussions are already in motion. But I would also say I think the president will have as much or more influence from that platform as from the White House. And if that's where we're going, then Mike Pence becomes the next nominee. And nobody's going to challenge Mike Pence. And if you don't like Trump, you've got to be scared of Pence because he's got the same views, but he's effective. And he's viewed by the Republicans as one of their own. And then they'll be up against, it'll be Pence against someone who's a true outsider. And uh, it will make for an interesting race. But having said all that, what I'm really saying to you is the middle of the country is winning this argument both ways. And the middle is going inward in their orientation. Weirdly, this doesn't mean that all geopolitics is a disaster. And strangely, we may get some good outcomes from this. Like, I personally would bet a fair whack of change that we're going to get a deal over the Korean Peninsula uh, and that we'll probably end up with some kind of deal between Trump and the Chinese that at least temporarily relieves all the trade war noise. And the reason, and I, do I have a minute? Just give oh, you quickly cool. the yes, reason yes. for that. So Xi Jinping looked at Trump, and it, you know the Chinese are very good negotiators. Very, you know, they play a long game. And he went, you know what? This is the first American president who's giving away territory. You think about it. He said, Ukraine, we're not interested in foreign policy. Complicated. Americans don't even know where Ukraine is. Keep it, right? <laughs> Okay, Syria, messy. Americans don't want to be involved in Syria. Do you Russians want it? Keep it. And this is when Xi Jinping went, oh my, what, what could we ask for? What could we get? Answer, North Korea. And why is North Korea valuable right now? Well, it's strategically valuable because of the coastline. It has a lot of raw materials, very known for mining. But most importantly, in an environment where Chinese labor has become more expensive than Wisconsin, an injection of 25 million very cheap laborers is suddenly a very valuable thing. And in an environment where you have this social credit system of constraining everyone's behavior into narrower and narrower space, the North Koreans are a good example of what we should be more like. We should be more like that. We should be more uniform. We should be more straight and narrow. And it's one of the reasons I'm concerned about China's future ability to innovate, because I'm with Frank Zappa, who said, all progress comes from deviation from the norm. And that is true. So if you're going to penalize the whole society for deviating from the norm, and you're going to do it like immediately, like the person jaywalks, and before you've got to the middle of the road, the fine is in your text message in your phone. So if you're going to really penalize people for deviating from the norm, you're killing innovation too. 
Right, well, this explains why I don't sit down in my room and think too much, because it's absolutely terrifying. Yeah. Um, anyway. Or it's good. I will. Yeah, but, but, but if we get that deal with North Korea, <laughs> if we get that deal with North Korea, and we get a deal with the Chinese, well, the markets are going to go up, and you guys are going to be so busy, you won't be able to see straight. We're quite busy now, actually. And weirdly. you're already busy. And if you enjoyed that, you may be interested in listening to some of the other podcasts on CliffordCharts.com. Or for more information on other business topics such as fintech, Brexit and global trade, have a look at our thought leadership pages and online hubs, Talking Tech and our Brexit hub. You've been listening to the Clifford Chance podcast. Please stay tuned for more coming soon to CliffordChance.com.